Get $10 off your next $50 or more purchase when you sign up for text alerts from Academy Sports and Outdoors. Text the word FISHING to 22369. Once again, that's FISHING to 22369. Offer expires 731 of 2022, and message and data rates may apply. Fisherman's Earth. More fish, more Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast Series. This episode is titled Mid-Atlantic White Marlin in August and September. I'm going to be featuring Robert McNeil of Safari Sport Fishing out of Wrightsville Beach. We're going to be talking about how to find, how to locate white marlin, the tackle, the spread, and then ultimately the art of hooking. My name is Gary Hurley of Fisherman's Post. Fisherman's Post has been serving the saltwater fishing community of North Carolina since 2003. We've been bringing you fishing reports, fishing information, fishing tournaments, fishing schools. And here in our latest and greatest effort, the Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast Series, where we reach out to our captain and guide friends from up and down the North Carolina coast and ask them to share with us their insights, their thoughts on how to catch more fish more often. And in this pursuit, I am joined every week with my partner, Billy Thorpe of Thorpe Creative Billy, welcome back to the podcast studio, or welcome me back to the podcast studio. <laughs> welcome back, Gary. Welcome to the studio, man. Uh, always a fun time. We sit down and talk about fishing, especially white marlin fishing. I don't know that much about it, but I, I'm, I'm going to be taking some notes. I'm pretty sure that, not only for my best takeaway later, but uh, just in general for when I, when I get that offshore boat, you know, when I make the big time, win the lottery, all those fun things. Or when, or when you have some well-to-do friends that invite you out on their boat, you won't be a total, you know... A Total L in the corner. You'll actually be able to speak some lingo, speak some vocabulary, or, or at least, yeah. or at least know enough to stay out of the way. Probably just stay out of the way. Probably just like I'll sit in the corner. I'll eat a bologna sandwich. You guys tell me when to take a picture. Billy, don't <laughs> touch anything unless we tell you to. Yeah, right. Exactly. Oh man. Well, speaking of touching something, Gary, I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on our sponsors. Okay, this is terrible. That's a terrible segue, but I do want to shout out our sponsors real quick. I will start with Bland Landscaping Company. Really appreciate these guys, Kurt and their team over there are doing a fantastic job. We appreciate them sponsoring the podcast for as long as they have. And um, go go check them out. Go hire them. They're all over the state of North Carolina. They're always looking for good talent to come be a part of their team. And then also, if you have projects for Bland Landscaping Company, be sure to reach out to them, uh, and they will they'll take care of you. They'll get you taken care of, squared away. Yeah, man, love what Bland is about. You know, they want to attract a certain quality of person. They want a career. And I love that they felt that our podcast fit their audience, like that outdoor spirit, and uh, certainly hope we're helping them attract a talent, spread the bland name, maybe get them some clients, you know, however we can serve. Happy to be associated. Yeah, absolutely, man. And then for our longest running uh, sponsor, we have Marine Warehouse. Got a quick video from them. We'll be right back. At Marine Warehouse, we have everything for trailer, trailer parts, engines, engine parts, new boats, boat parts, a full store. We have a service department. We are your one-stop shop for marine equipment and hardware. We offer a wide variety of parts and accessories for all your marine needs. The best part about working at Marine Warehouse Center is to help customers really get the most out of their coastal lifestyle and share our love for the water. At Marine Warehouse, we're here to get you out on the water because of our love for the water. We like being out there. We want you out there with us. All right, there you go, Gary. Yeah, man. That's the crew. They are the crew. They recently got my live well back up and running. Live well wasn't working. Now the live well is working. Oh, I thought you were going to share another story, but I won't. That's for another podcast. (laughs) 
Oh, man. Well, and speaking of Emmett and those guys and Terrell and the whole crew, um, man, Emmett has not been around as much this season. You know, we've been seeing him out. And so part of uh, part of our job now here at Fisherman's Post Podcast is to figure out where in the world is Emmett. Where in the world is Emmett? And this is where I give you, Gary, a hint, maybe two if you need it. You probably won't need it for this one. And our audience to figure out where in the world has he been. And uh, all I'm going to say is he's been sipping suds, if you know what that means. Yeah, he's been drinking beer. He's at a German whatever it's called. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, definitely is having a beer with the boys right here. So. Oh, that looks more soccer than uh, German. That it, looks more soccer crowd. Yeah, he's definitely definitely in the soccer crowd here. So there he is, just having fun. He he looks a little pixelated, and maybe needs to drink a little water. <laughs> he needs he needs a team shirt like they have. Man, he's still wearing his Suzuki shirt. He needs a team shirt. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, that's where Emmett's at. And if you guys see him out there, make sure you snap a picture and shoot it over to us, and we'll be sure to <laughs> post it on. That would be funny. People start shooting pictures of Emmett and send them to us. And where we'll, in the world is Emmett? Where in the world is Emmett? There he is. I don't. I don't know how that seg that bit's going over, Gary. Maybe people can let us know. If you <laughs> like it, give us a thumbs up in the comment. If not, maybe just let us know <laughs> in an email. <laughs> oh, I hope I'm not. <laughs> I hope I'm not going back to Terrell and jokes. I hope that's not the direction. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'll, uh, we'll keep it to where people like. They like fishing pictures, so I'll go ahead and show you guys a photo. Please. Here is Dexter Greason from Burlington, North Carolina, with a 72-pound wahoo caught on a ballyhoo. He was fishing out of the Beaufort Inlet. So good-looking fish, so big I couldn't even get him all the way in the photo. But appreciate you sending the photo. And just a quick reminder, Fisherman's Post loves photos so be sure to send them over so where where's the best place gary photos at fishermanspost.com can't mess that up or, or te text it i'll give a text to text it to 910-452-6378 man maybe we should actually put that in the graphic what do you think or or you can instagram you're already posting it anyway so just send it over tag fisherman's post in it or just print it off at Walgreens, put it in the mail, and ship it to Gary. He loves scanning stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or draw a picture. Draw a picture of it and then mail me the picture. The spe we like colors, so use crayons. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I'm going to let you guys talk about fishing before we start making any more bad jokes. All right. Well, before Billy's Best Takeaway, this is also where I remind everyone – Weekly Fishing Reports, Fisherman's Post is in the Weekly Fishing Reports game. Again, it was our past. It was how we started into this world. Uh, now we offer them, but we offer them behind a paid wall, a subscription wall, audio and video delivery. Fisherman'sPost.com under member content for more details. Now that's my quick one, and then I'm going to say Billy, Billy's best takeaway. I'll be ready. Again, this white marlin conversation coming back to you for Billy's best takeaway. And now it is my pleasure to welcome to the to welcome to the podcast, welcome to the show, Robert McNeil, Safari Sport Fishing out of the Wrightsville Beach area, here to talk about Mid Atlantic White Marlin in August and September. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, sir. Thanks, Gary, for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, man, I'm looking for it. You know, if there, as I told you before, if there's an area I need to up my knowledge base, I think it is. You know, bill fishing easily falls under that category, so I'm very much looking to be a student tonight listening to you talk. But as much as I'm looking forward to it, there is still the tradition of two questions before we get underway. You tell me you're ready. I give you question number one. 
All right, let's go. Question number one is, why should I listen to you try to tell me about a white marlin? <laughs> well, you certainly don't have to, but uh, so me and my friends, we've been white marlin fishing and bill fishing in general, fishing offshore uh, 20 plus years. I'd say the past 10 or 15 years, we've really been focusing on bill fishing in general. And we really got the bug for the white marlin fishing, uh, started doing that. It's been, I don't know, I guess it's been 15 years. We started fishing out of Pirates Cove and uh, just started getting pretty, uh, started getting some good numbers of fish and having a lot of fun doing it, doing pretty good in some tournaments and uh, taking some charters here and there. And um, we actually have had a couple of good, um, results in some tournaments. One year we got third place at Pirates Cove, um, several top five finishes in Pirates Cove and Virginia Beach Billfish Tournament. And more recently, uh, we just won the, the release division at the Big Rock Blue Marlin Tournament. So uh, we've been having a little bit of success at it and having a lot of fun doing it. That is certainly an acceptable resume. You have more than qualified for question number two, Robert. Congrats on your success. Question number two, as tradition goes, is non-fishing related. I got a couple of true-false questions for you. So I, uh -oh. you know, that's about as easy a trivia question as I can give you as a true-false. You got 50% chance. And I based it off of safari. So these are questions about safaris. Are you ready? Or safari yep. related? A giraffe has less vertebrates in its neck than a human. Less. Uh that's false. It's false, but not for the reason you think. They actually have the same number of vertebrates. I should have said I should have said more. Then I would have got you, I think. But how about that? <laughs> giraffe if the internet isn't lying to me, giraffes have wow. the same amount of vertebrates in their neck as a human does. All right. Question number two. Cheetahs don't actually need to drink water to survive. Yeah, that's false. If the internet's right. not lying to me, it's true. They can actually get what they need from blood. They can get their uh, water needs from blood. So, I mean, I don't think sense. forever they can live without water, but apparently blood can prop them up. Anyway, enough of safari talk. Man, let's get underway, man. Bill fishing. What a great pastime. I'm sure there's so many moving parts. So, I like your idea. You know, your notes said, man, let's talk about finding them first. And, again, we're specifically talking about mid-Atlantic, and we're specifically talking about August and September. What do you got for me? Help us out. We want to find a white marlin. Right. Well, I guess it depends on where you're going out of to start. So uh, whether you're fishing out of Pirates Cove in North Carolina or Virginia Beach or you know, the other options are Ocean City, Maryland, Cape May, New Jersey, uh, really depends on where you're going out of there. So it, it your strategy can change depending on um, which inlet you're going out of. Um, but, you know, let's say you're going out of Pirates Cove. If you're going out of Pirates Cove, in that area, you've got the Gulf Stream colliding with the Labrador current. Um, so you've got those going on. You don't have the Gulf Stream further up north off of Maryland and New Jersey. So uh, basically in that time of year, the bait just starts getting stacked up um, on those current boundaries. Uh, the best way to find a current boundary um, well, you could ride around and, and look for rips, look for 
weed lines and birds diving and that kind of thing. But what we like to do, and there's multiple tools to, to do this as far as sea surface temperature charts go. Uh, you've got rip charts and Hilton's that give you a decent idea, but the best one, uh, the tournament, not a tournament, the uh, industry standard would be Roth's reports. So they give you a really good detailed analysis of where temperature breaks are colliding with other temperature breaks. And usually on those, those edges is where you'll find weed lines um, and, and just life in general. So you try to look at that rough shot and pick a good area uh, where the temperature is what you're shooting for. Um, generally, um, you know, generally you try to, you pick that spot on the rough shot, you cross-reference it with your chart plotter, set a course for it, get out to that spot, and then you just start riding around looking for uh, sea surface activity. You're looking for your slicks, your weed lines, your bird activity. Um, did you have a temperature change when you crossed that weed line? Are you marking bait? Uh, things like that. Um, and then it never hurts to network with other crews on other boats, uh, people that fished the previous day or the previous days. Um, you know, some, it, it's got to be your friends, right? Because most people aren't going to tell you where the fish are. But uh, a lot of people in this, the offshore industry um, know, know each other. And everybody's helping each other try to find fish. Um, for the most part, tournaments are a little bit different with that, but, uh, if you can get some good Intel from a friend and it matches up with the rough shot and you get out there and, and see what you can find. All um, right. I got a couple of follow-up questions, man. Sure. So I like that you're focusing on Pirate's Cove. I mean, you know, certainly people are going to travel to find a white Marlin, but since we're North Carolina, I like that Pirate's Cove is what we're talking about. Plus, I think it helps just to zero in on one topic instead of trying to cover a couple of different inlets. So typically, in August and September out of Pirate's Cove, you can expect to run how far out of Oregon Inlet? Well, it depends. Um, sometimes they can be in really close, like uh, when, the, when the bite really starts going off and it sometimes does push in pretty close. There's been times where we've ran, you know, 40 miles from the inlet and and done very well. Uh, and then there's other times where we've ran 70 miles. Um, it just, I mean, it kind of depends on the direction of the wind. Has it been blowing, um, you know, west for a while to stack that bait up? Okay. And then you say looking for temperature breaks. So what would be a typical temperature break that you might see? in August, September out of Pirate's Cove? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it depends on, okay, if it's the Gulf Stream hitting the Labrador, then you might see, I'd say somewhere about 78 to 80 um, would be the Gulf Stream edge, and then it pushes it up against the, the Labrador, and then that would be several degrees cooler than that. And then... Are you doing a Roth's shot at night? Are you doing another Roth's shot early in the morning before you head out? And again, I know I'm asking you questions that you just can't answer with a specific answer because it's so variable. But I guess my other question is, is like, 
how often does that night shot or even that early early morning shot match up with what you find out there? Like how quickly is that stuff moving out there on you? So Rofs does a pretty good job of predicting the conditions for the following day. So when you go to, uh, it's not a free service uh, and it's probably the more expensive service, but it's the best service. Uh, so you order a shot um, anytime during the day before your fishing trip. So you need to have your order in by four or five o'clock in the afternoon, I think, and they'll send you the shot that evening by seven o'clock and they'll that'll be their prediction for the for the fishing for the following day um it changes a little bit it's not exact but it's the best guide that the industry has right now okay right on um man i just had another follow-up question on that and i can't think of it i'm sorry i'm blanking on this we only used to use rough shots during tournaments but you know now it's it's like we're spending uh all this time to go out there, time and effort to be offshore. It's such a, a big deal to get out there. You might as well go ahead and spend another, you know, it's, I think it's about 80 to $90 for that shot, but it's worth it. Uh, even on your fun fishing days um, for any species of fish, sure, I would say. So um, th- thank you for that. And I remember my question. So like, if you're looking for temperature breaks, is that really like all you're looking for, as far as the chart goes, I, I, I understand that when you get out there, you have to open your eyes and you got to look for birds and you got to look for slicks and you look for weed lines. But as far as planning, is it a matter of temperature breaks over a certain type of bottom or just temperature breaks rule the roost? You know, the bottom doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, your temperature breaks, the bottom is not as important as long as you're in deep enough water. Um, you know, your, your white marlin and blue marlin don't typically come in uh, super shallow like a sailfish will. So, um, you know, we're, we're wanting, you know, 50 to 100 fathoms for white marlin. Um, and out of Pirate's Cove, you know, you don't have the canyons out of Pirate's Cove like you do further up on the mid-Atlantic. So you're really trying to find that body of water and the temperature breaks help you find your weed lines and and that's where your base can be stacked up is on those, um, those temperature breaks with weed lines and so forth. All right. So I think you just answered was going to be my next question about finding fish. Like, and it was going to be when you get out there, you know, you've used roughs, you've got your temperature breaks, um, you've got it plotted, you get out there and you do find the temperature break you're looking for. My question was going to be visually just taking in your surroundings, not electronic based. Like what, what gets you most excited once you see it? Like, that's definitely what I wanted to see. I've got complete confidence now we're in the right spot. Right. And uh, I don't know why I didn't even mention that up front, but when the bite is going off, all you got to do is look for birds tornadoing down on a bait ball. And it is National Geographic's type stuff when it's going off because the birds are tornadoing down. The white marlin and tuna are darting across the surface. And you're, you're looking at, your depth sounder and you look up and see that and you're like, Oh, let's just go over there. That should be a good spot. And, um, so if you can't forget to look up and look around and use your binoculars to scan the horizon for, for birds, um, big groups of birds, if you see them tornado and that's the spot. Um, and second place would be weed lines behind active birds or groups of birds. 
Yeah, I would work a weed line and try to find bait if I couldn't find any birds working some bait. And then the other way, uh, and this is kind of a newer technology that has been out. I think it's been out for at least seven years. Um, but I don't know if you guys have heard about the Omnisonar, the Furuno Omnisonar. Um, a little bit. But that thing is a, a 360 live sonar that scans the water. Uh, we're scanning out about a thousand feet and it's a live sonar. So you're seeing everything live stream. Um, I'd say that probably at this point, maybe 50% of the fleet might have them. That's just a, a really rough ballpark. Uh, but that thing's deadly. It definitely helps find fish and, and helps you get on top of them. And if you can get on top of more fish, you get more bites. Is that a pretty quick learning curve? Like you can, when you're using that, you can tell when you see a fish or does it take a bit of practice, like a, like a normal bottom machine to understand what you're looking at? It, it was a little bit of a learning curve for us with it, but we asked a few friends about it. Uh, this got one already and, um, you know, really after a few weeks of using that thing, we had it figured out as far as, um, you know, what column of water you've got to search because it searches different columns of the water, um, based on what tilt you got that thing at. Um, and yeah, just playing with it for a little while, we figured it out pretty good. Um, I've heard other people say they struggle with figuring it out, but, um, maybe they haven't reached out for help on it. Okay. Well, man, I think we've covered it pretty well. If I haven't set you up about anything else as far as finding fish goes, please share. Otherwise, I'll move on to the, the tackle, like what you like to have on the boat. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so with the tackle, uh, and when you're targeting white marlin, we're using all dink rods. So we're using, we use the Shimano Italica 25s. And we're you know, 30 pound main line, 60 to 80 pound leader, uh, depending on, you know, how, how light you want to go or not. If you're, if you're just trying to get them to the boat and pop them off and not trying to get the build in 60 pounds is probably fine. Um, we're using eight alt, uh, circle hooks. Um, we've tried seven alt circle hooks, but if you get a blue Marlin bite and it's going to straighten the hook out. So we, we stay with the eight alt hook. Um, and that's the thing about, um, the mid Atlantic bite and the part of it is why it's so fun is because, yeah, you can rack up the numbers on white Marlin, but that time of year, you better be ready for a blue Marlin bite too. So we also have two big pitch baits ready, uh, with what we call the Tingham bait. And that is basically, um, it's just a medium molecraft chugger head with a double offset hook set in it. Um, so you got to have that ready as well. Maybe two of them, uh, and we'll have, we'll have one on a 50 wide and one on an 80 wide. Um, uh, and, and so we'll, we'll have those just in the rod holders in the back, just, um, just waiting. And then, so with the dink baits and a dink bait is just a, a select ballyhoo that's probably, you know, eight to 10 inches long. Uh, it's naked rig with the circle hook um we'll run two flat lines two shorts slash longs behind the teasers and 
um, either a shotgun or a mousetrap. Um, so you're, you're generally running about five or six lines and then you've got multiple dink baits ready to go. Cause if you, if you get a bite and you don't get them, you need to replace that bait really quick with another rod. So we have multiple dink baits ready to go, um, to replace, or if more fish get in the spread and you need to pitch to multiple fish, uh, to get multiple hookups at the same time. Um, Outside of the rods, you've got two teasers. Usually they're daisy chains. Um, we'll either put mullets on the back, on the tail of them. Um, sometimes we put Spanish mackerel. Uh, either or work really well. And then the dredges are really important. Um, so if we're not in a tournament, we might would just pull a Squid Nation dredge. Uh, and really any color will probably work. We've used black, we've used pink, we've used green. Um, and in tournaments, we're gonna pull all mullet dredges with probably um, double or triple tier dredges. Um, if you're on a center console, you can easily run a dredge off of a downrigger. Um, on sport fish boats, most people use LP reels, electromatic reels to pull the dredges. Um, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll pop it, man. I'm trying my best to follow along, but that's okay. I'm, we're going to circle back around and I'm going to, you know, ask some follow-up questions. I mean, that's yes. just what I do. So on your standard white Marlin, not the two bigger baits you have for blue Marlin in case they come in, you said 68 pound liter. Is there a standard length you like as far as amount of liter? Um, I think most tournaments, uh, require you not to have more than 30 feet a liter so we don't ever exceed that and that's from the bimini twist not from the main line all the way down to the hook uh into the liter is about 30 feet okay and then um, okay go ahead. i was gonna say i was gonna ask a different question if you got something else on that then let me know well like the liter you tie bimini to the main line and then you tie the liter uh to the end of that and then there's a barrel swivel at the end of that um, that you're able to clip in your your circle hook rig lines, which are about six to eight feet long. Um, and so you want to be able to change that final six to eight feet out as frequent as you need to, because if you get a bite, uh, that rig is pretty much trashed. The leader is all chafed. So you're able to clip in and out um, new the, the final piece of the leader right there. Okay. So now I'm going to walk through the spread a little bit slower just so I follow. So two flat lines off the back, and those are just naked ballyhoo. And yep. you typically send them how far back, and do you have both back the same, or do you stilt them at all? Uh, you can stagger them a little bit, but with the flat lines, they're going to be pretty much in the same spot. You want them to be in between the dredge and the teaser. Okay, in between the dredge and the teaser, but both of them are naked ballyhoo. And then what do you have running off of the outriggers, the short slash long? Yeah. So I say short slash long because sometimes you just run flats and longs and not flats, shorts and longs. Uh, you can do that. And we do that sometimes, but um, it, for us, it really doesn't matter what bait you're, you got out there. We, we're running um, naked dink baits everywhere. Uh, some people do put chugger heads on the longs or a shotgun, and uh, we've done that every now and then. Um, 
So. <laughs> okay. So you've, I mean, this is, this is interesting to me again. I'm not quite in my arena, but you feel very confident with five baits out there. Cause I guess what teasers and dredges are part of what's really bringing the attention in not more baits. Is that kind of the thought? Like I don't need two more baits. I need to make sure my teasers and dredges are functioning as, as they should. That's right. And, and you really need a, I need a diagram that I can just put on the screen and show you the spread here. But um, yeah, so what you really want are your, your teaser bites and fish that are coming up on the dredge and fading off to the teaser or uh, fading right off to your flat line. And a lot of times you'll see those fish right there um, in the dredge. The, the captain on the fly bridge will see them. If you've got somebody in the tower, they'll see them. Sometimes we can see them from the cockpit underwater in the dredge. Um, so if, if he's in the dredge or the teaser and he doesn't bite your flat line, then he's going to fade off. Uh, and hopefully he'll fade off into your long bait and bite that. Um, and when you get that, if you get that bite, then you go and the captain goes into his turn on that fish and you keep the, some people pull the dredge out. Uh, I wouldn't pull the dredge and the teaser out. I'd probably leave the teaser out there at least, um, and have a, a flat line in your hand waiting for another one and probably do a full pass on that at least before you pull everything in and just go after that one fish because you're trying to get multiple bites. All right. Well, you kind of answered the question I was headed for next. Well, maybe. And so I was wondering, like, you have a couple of, you know, pitch baits at the ready. Are you getting by far most of your bites off of baits in the water versus baits that you pitch back to fish that are playing with your teaser or playing with your dredge? If you've got one on your teaser, then you're, you're going to have that flat line in your hand and trying to reach that rod tip out as far as you can to get that bait as close to the teaser as possible. And once you've got the, once you've got the, I mean, you, you want to be holding all these rods, all your, all your guys holding the rods as much as you can, because your chances just increase drastically if you're holding the rod on the bite. Um, but when you got one on the teaser, you try to get your bait as close to that teaser as possible. And then the captain brings the teaser in, gets that out of the water. And now that fish is left there with only one option. And that's hopefully your dink bait. So you'll, you'll drop back the flat line before you put another bait in the water. And that's yeah, the, closest, the closest thing to it. Okay. I follow um, that. Yeah. So you would drop that back to, um, to a teaser bite. And, and if, you get that one and you see another one, then you would pitch a bait to that second one. Um, talking about dredges, this was a question I had because you said in a tournament, you're going to run a different dredge, a mullet dredge. Why, why mullet in a tournament and why a different dredge on a non-tournament day? It, I mean, and sometimes we will pull mullet dredge on, on fun fishing day or a charter. It really comes down to how much time you got the night before to do all the prep work. Do you want to rig 50 mullets? Uh, 50 to 100 mullets the night before or don't you how important is that to you how you know when you see how effective the squid nation dredges actually are um but my recommendation is mullet dredges for sure okay um man uh anything else on the spread i mean i i think walking back through it i i actually fo myself followed better than i thought i was and in part that's because <laughs> we're talking about five lines and not you know seven or plus lines 
Anything else on yeah. the spread that you've thought of while we've been talking? I guess the last thing, and that just reminded me of it when you said, uh, you know, five versus six or seven, and it then comes down to the sea conditions. Can you actually manage more than five lines out there with choppy seas and winds blowing all your lines all over each other? If it's flat calm and there's no wind, you could probably pull uh, six or seven lines and your teasers. Um, but yeah, it really comes down to the sea conditions at that point. All right. I'm going to say in advance, I'm going to ask you to forgive me for asking a dumb question, but I'm going to use this. I am going to ask a dumb question, but I'm going to also use it as a segue into the last talking point, which is hooking a white marlin, how to best hook a white marlin. And that is, I absolutely follow the rationale, the logic of you're going to, you're going to get way more bite successful bites with the rod in your hand than the rod, not in your hand. But you're only talking about putting the rod in your hand once a fish has been spotted. I'm guessing that you guys aren't trolling around holding any rods. It's just once something has been identified or or where am I on understanding that? So you want to hold that rod all day. And if you if you put it down, somebody else is walking over there and grabbing it and picking it up. That's uh, you hear a lot of guys religiously talking about holding rods all day long and it gets tiring uh so i mean there's there's times where you you put it back in the rod holder and you go get something to drink and just as soon as you do it gets bit and now you miss that bite because you weren't holding the rod and it, um i mean you don't always miss the fish because you weren't holding it you when we catch a lot of them um not holding the rod but your best chances are feeling that initial bite and seeing the bite the same time you're getting bit to just to react to it faster. All right. Well, there we go, man. I mean, I thought that's what I heard, but I was like, man, are we really talking about holding the rod the whole trip? Like, I mean, yeah. I, I'm intrigued now, man. I, I haven't done that. I mean, and now I'm in. Like, I'm like, hmm, all right, this is something new. Well, again, I also said that this question, which I guess wasn't that dumb a question, is a segue into, like, successful hook sets. And, I, I mean, I know a lot goes into it, a lot of fine-tuning, a lot of – practice a lot of you know figuring out your technique and nuances so what are you willing to share with us man help us out with successful hook sets when it comes to white marlin fishing yeah so if you've never circle hook fish before um you're going to need some practice it's going to be a learning curve um one of the best ways to do it is just to go mahi fishing with circle hooks just like you would use for white marlin because that bite is very similar to the white marlin and how you would react to the bite. So that's good practice. Um, but yeah, practice is, is the best thing, but basically the mechanics of it, um, your best chances would be, you know, you're holding the rod. I wish I had a rod right now. I could demonstrate a little bit better, but, um, so you're holding the rod in your hand, you've got it in free spool and you've got your, your right thumb on the spool so that you're just holding enough pressure so the bait doesn't go out. Um, you know, hopefully you're going to see the fish come up behind it. You see him bite it and then, you know, instantly cause you saw it and you felt him nibble, you know, pull the jerk on your, your rod. And so you instantly, what I do is I drop the rod, I send it in the free spool and your thumb is just, just barely touching the spool to keep it from free spooling. If you don't have your thumb on it, you're going to bird nest the reel and then it zing pals and you're done. And then all your friends laugh at you. 
But if you put too much pressure on it and he's got it, you could burn your thumb up. It'll actually really burn your thumb. So just enough pressure on there so it doesn't bird nest, not too much that it pulls it out of its mouth. And, you know, some people talk about an eight-second count on the drop back. I try not to think about a, a time frame. I try to think about, um, you know, because you know what it feels like when you're just dropping a bait back, how fast that usually goes with the boat pulling it out. Now you're trying to feel for is this bait going out a lot faster than it normally would be? And and usually at that point, the fish is eating it and he's turned off and he's swimming away with it really fast. At that point, he swallowed it and you can set the hook. So you reach over with your left hand and I point the rod tip down and slowly pull the drag up. And hopefully he's there. If he is, then the rod tip goes over, starts ripping drag and you're good to go. Um, sometimes you pull it out of his mouth. Um, sometimes if you pulled it out of its mouth, that doesn't necessarily mean that the bait's messed up. So a lot of times I'll reel it up to the surface real quick and see the bait skipping. So now I know where to look to watch for the bite again. And sometimes we'll come right back around and bite it again. So you drop back and try to set the, the hook again. Um, but sometimes it doesn't work because they've already ate the bait and you got Sam coach head and you need to reel that up and get another pitch bait out there real quick. Um, I guess I'll pause there for a second. No, that was good. And I'm, fo I'm following everything. You're doing a good job. And we have more people that listen to this than watch it. So a no rod demo was needed. I okay. think you did a, you did a great <laughs> job explaining it. And so again, I just like to ask to make sure I'm understanding. So as far as setting the drag, it's more about speed of line going out than perceiving any weight on the rod it really has more to do with just the the speed at which you know that like you said it's not the boat it's not the speed of the boat this is clearly something different yeah so you're not going to feel uh any pressure on the rod tip because you're in full free spool so there's no tension on the rod tip uh because because of the free spool um and it usually only takes about between I would just call it five and eight seconds, somewhere in there, you're going to, that fish is probably going to have it. You're going to feel the spool speeding up and you can lightly touch, put a little more pressure with your thumb on there to see if it's, if it's pulling before you just go and set the drag, just thumb it a little bit. And, and then if you can tell it's really pulling on it, go ahead and slowly put the drag up and hopefully it's there. All right. And then if, if you're pulling the hook, instead of just immediately dropping it back you're you're cranking it up to the surface so you, to see to make sure there's still a, a bait on the hook that you're still playing with yeah you want to make sure if, if you get if you miss the bite you've got to reel that bait up so you can see it to make sure that you know a lot of times you'll just see a head skip in there and so you know that you're out of the game you got to pull that one all the way in um if you can see a bait flapping on the surface, it might still be a little messed up, but probably good enough for another bite. Um, so you want it, it's to check the bait and to see where your bait is because you really want to see the bite. So the bite's going to happen where the bait is. If you can see the bait, then you know where to look to see the bite. So now, I, I think if you can 
see the bite, it just increases your chances because you're faster on the drop off. Okay. And when you're doing, so if you're on that and you've, the hook has been pulled and you're reeling it up, check the bait. You also want the visual confirmation. You also want to put yourself back in a position where you can see the bite. I'm following that logic. So while you're doing that, is anyone else doing anything else with like a bait further back or it is just your show until this either works or it doesn't work? Is any other angler doing anything else? Yeah. So the whole time, you know, there's a lot of times you get a lot of people on the boat and most of the time there's only about four or five guys in the cockpit that are working as a team to make the whole thing happen. So you're in constant communication with everybody. Uh, if you get bit, you want the other guys on your team to know you got bit so they know how to react in the rest of the cockpit. If you get a bite on the left flat, then the captain needs to know so he can start going into his turn. The other guys are, uh, if they weren't holding rods already, they definitely need to be holding a rod now to make sure that if that fish fades off of you and hits one of their baits, that they're ready. Or if there's more fish there, then they're ready to get the bite on their their rod. Um, so everybody's manning a rod at that point. Um, other people in the cockpit are, um, they're either pulling in the dredges or getting other pitch baits ready to put out. Um, just normal cockpit maintenance type stuff. Okay. And so I'm going to ride this into, you know, another section, like after the hook. And so you've already told us like, all right, left flat, the captain isn't going to affect speed at all. And when I finish this question, too, I'm going to ask you, what you know, your standard trolling speed. But the captain isn't going to affect speed at all. He's going to, if it's a left flat, he's going to go into a left turn. Guys are man and rods just waiting to see an opportunity. Um, we're going to say that you're Robert McNeil. You didn't pull the hook. You hooked. You're hooked up. Now what happens? If I'm hooked up and we don't think we're going to get another bite, then everybody that has a rod in their hand is reeling that that bait up they're getting it in the boat we're getting the dredges in actually we just we don't have to pull the dredges or the teasers in the boat we just you, you reel them up and they can dangle from the outriggers but you get everything up and then we're going in reverse as fast as we can to try to get that release as fast as we can um you want to get that release as fast as you can so you can get back to fishing as quick as possible to go catch another one um so uh if you've got multiple hookups, then you have to, the captain has to pick which one he wants to go after first, whichever one he thinks he can get the quickest he goes after first. Um, and so the person that has to sit there with a fish on the line and wait for his buddy to reel in that one, sometimes he has to go to the bow and, and just wait on the bow with that fish jumping way out there. And he constantly will remind you that he's up there and don't forget about him. But, um, yeah, it, it gets pretty exciting when you get multiple fish on. What speed are you trolling? And at any point does the captain back off of that speed before there's an official release? Uh, we're trolling about six and a half knots. Um, and you never change that speed. If, uh, if you get a fish in the spread, or you get a bite, you don't, the only thing you change is that you might go into a turn on that fish on a bite. Um, and you know, once you've decided that you're not, or once you realize you're not going to get a, a second or third bite, 
and you're only fighting that one fish, then, you know, the captain will go to neutral and if the angler's still getting line, he'll start going in reverse. And once you get the fish to the boat, then the mate gets the lead of the fish up. Um, and at that point, the captain will start going uh, one engine in gear uh, so you can get the hook out of the fish's mouth if you get to the bill. Okay. I figure there was a time where you actually backed down on the fish or, you know, pulled it out. And I definitely understand, like, you don't want to give up on multiples, but, you know, once you're locked into that fish. So I guess I'm going to preface this with this might be a dumb question too, but here we go. You know, so when we've decided as a crew, as a boat, that it's just this fish, there isn't going to be a multiple, bring them in. Am I bringing it in as fast as I can, or am I bringing it in at a pace where I might yet get bit? Oh, yeah. Um, I think when we decide we're bringing them in, we're bringing them in as fast as possible. Um, Yeah, we're, if we're, the only time we slowly bring a bait in is if we want to change, change it out, then you might would just slowly reel it in and not reel it in as fast as possible. But when you decide you're going after that fish and you're not worried about another bite, it's reel, reel the lines in as fast as possible. If I'm reeling in that bait as fast as possible, have I, compromise the integrity of that bait and it's going to be necessary to change it out or no, that doesn't happen. Uh, it happens for sure. And you just have to look at that bait and decide if it's good enough to put out or you want to replace it before you put it back out. But it's, it's worth messing that bait up to get that fish. Yeah. I'm with you, man. Uh, yeah. I, I have followed, I've followed along better than I think. Again, <laughs> I, you know, you'll have to forgive some of those questions, but I think I did okay today. And this is me basically saying I'm I'm at the end of my questions, but I always end with like, what else, Robert? Man, what else? This is your Mid Atlantic White Marlin and August September podcast. You know, I'm trying to help illuminate you and what you know. What else do people need to know, and or you know, just a final thought as we bring your podcast to a close? Uh, you know, I guess it's just with the offshore fishery. Um, you know, there's we just talked about August and September, but you can go out there other times of the year and get these fish too. Just not like, you know, you can in those months. Um, the blue Marlin fishing is a lot of fun to me. We've had a a really good season in that, uh, this year, this May and June. Um, and then after the, after the white Marlin bite, then it's the Wahoo season, uh, all through the winter. And, um, and yeah, it's, uh, it can be a year-round sport if you chase every species. Well, Robert, again, I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate you sharing with us, you know, what you have. And uh, I'm already looking forward to talking Blue Marlin with you in the spring. Yeah, sounds good. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, have a good have a good Mid-Atlantic season, August and September. Keep us keep us posted on your on your accomplishments. Will do. Thanks, Gary. Thank you, Robert. Billy Thorpe. All right. Here we go. He laid that out so even you could follow. I don't know, dude. He did a good job, but I still don't know that I'm smart enough to follow that. It's, uh, that's a, a lot of moving parts there. But I did follow a couple parts. And it's the part that uh, I'll share my takeaway with you, Gary, because it's the okay. most important part is freaking hold on to that rod all day. <laughs> that's what I was like, what? Like, all right. You leave it in old rod, need the rod holder, and you might get screwed. So I'm like... I'm just going to pee in my pants and wear a catheter or something. (laughs) Like, I'm in it. I'm trying to catch one. Let's go.
I mean, it is, it is a different level of commitment is what happens on yeah. safari sport fishing. I'm in, I'm in like, you know, you know, before you get on the boat, I'm sure like here, this is the deal, man. And then you get on that boat, you go in by the boat's rules and by God, I'm going to have that rod in my hand. Cause I don't want to put it down and have someone else pick it up. And I certainly don't want to miss a bite. Like I'm in. Which one would be the worst part, Gary? Like you put it down to go pee and somebody grabs it or you just miss it. I guess maybe you wouldn't know if you missed the bite. You know, I'm a big person, so I would rather someone else catch my fish than no one catch a fish. <laughs> sure. Come on. That was just sure. too easy sure, for me Gary. to answer in a safe sure. way. If anybody ever fishes with Gary, he catches the first fish. All right. Just know that. <laughs> you know, yeah, we could make the joke, like, hold the rod. You mean after he hooks it, hold the rod? Yeah. Like, when are you handing it to me? Yeah, right. That's probably, yeah, that was a better, that's a better <laughs> joke because that's probably the truth. Like, Robert, you got the fish on? Okay. Just let me know when I need to reel. <laughs> Are you you getting actually reel it, and I'll just like do the last ten feet down. My, my arm's kind of tired. Can we back down any faster? <laughs> Can we take it from six and a half knots to like eight in reverse, please? We get this fish on the boat. I need my sandwich anyway. Well, man, it's been a ton of fun. That was a great episode. I know our viewers, listeners are gonna enjoy listening to that and um, taking some notes with it. So, um, if you guys have any questions, leave them in the comments, and um, I I can't answer them. So Gary Gary, I'll have to. <laughs> Sure, I'll answer it. I'll, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Uh, here's Robert's email. Have fun. Dim bingo. <laughs> um, awesome. want to shout out to our sponsors once again, uh, Academy Sports, Marine Warehouse Center, and Bland Landscaping for making this episode possible. So go support those guys and gals where you can. We really appreciate you watching. And, uh, yeah, give us a thumbs up. Let us know where you're watching from. Give us a review on the podcast. All that stuff goes a really long way. And join our fishing inshore fishing membership group. Uh, man, it's just taken off, dude. That thing is a lot of good feedback there, man. A lot of good feedback. And even Gary's catching fish on his own boat from listening, it's, being a part of the project. They're that good. The reports are that good. <laughs> All right, Gary. Well, we'll see you in the next one, man. Fishing.